Well, Christian greetings to all of you, dear people, in the name of Jesus Christ. It has been such a, a beautiful experience for me and for my family this weekend to be with you, and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your kindness, for your generosity, for your hospitality. Throughout the week, you have certainly made me feel at home here, and thank you for that. that that's very meaningful. It has been a joy to be here and to rekindle some old friendships, to make some new friendships, and I'm blessed to see the life and the interest here in the Word of God. So continue to be faithful and to walk in His ways. And dear children, I want to thank you for what I found up here on the pulpit. I found some beautiful flowers. I found a a special note that wished me a, a blessed day, and it was signed by a bunch of little children. Uh, you know who you are. That means an awful lot to me. Anyway, thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for reaching out and, and blessing me in that way. In the Old Testament, we find numerous pictures of progression that point to the coming Messiah and his kingdom in the hearts and lives of men and women. I call them pictures of progression. For example, in Daniel chapter 2, we have this picture of this great, enormous, beautiful, dazzling statue. And then this rock that was hewn out without human hands rolls and smashes into the feet of this statue, and completely destroys it. And then that rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. I say it's a picture of progression that points to the coming Messiah and his work in the hearts and lives of men and women. There's another Example in Ezekiel chapter 17. And this is where there's a tender twig is trimmed from the highest cedar, way up on the highest mountain. So this is the very highest twig on the highest cedar on a very high mountain. And it's planted on a mountain in Israel. And it grows and bears fruits and becomes a splendid cedar tree. And birds of all kinds come and build nests, find shelter in the branches of that tree. Now, throughout the Bible, over and over again, we come face to face with the call of the gospel. It's calling sinner to salvation. It's calling saints to a deeper and more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I say there's this call of the gospel that is throughout Scripture from the front cover to the back. As I reflect on how the call of the gospel has worked out in my personal life, my mind goes back to the year 2011. I was 30 years old. I had a beautiful wife, three little boys, I managed a business. I owned a, a house and five acres out in the country. Had a pickup truck and a minivan. Had sung with a men's quartet for 11 years. Life was just really good. Life was really good. And yet, through that year, the Holy Spirit was putting His finger on two things in particular in my life. My music and my hunting. Brother Philip talked about singing, that it's been a, a real legacy in the Good family, and he's right. That doesn't mean that Josh Good has always got his music tastes correct. I've had my own journeys in life in that. But I had a stash of music that I had, a stash of CDs that I had from way back in my late teenage years, early 20s. 
Oh, it wasn't anti-God, violent kind of music, but it was, it was more secular, fleshy music. But I, I found some identity, as it were, in that music, something that I had kind of enjoyed as a younger man, and I kind of fi- found some identity in that music, kind of found it hard to, to completely let go of that. And from time to time, my dear wife would, would nudge me a bit and admonish me a bit, challenge me a bit, and that was good. But God was, was speaking to me about some of my music, music that was hindering my walk with God, music that was coming between me and Christ, music that was making me think along the lines of the flesh and not as much the spirit. And I came to the point where I decided, okay, I'm willing to to get rid of that. And I remember throwing a whole pile of CDs in the trash can. And I remember the feeling of that. It was almost like I was was throwing part of my life away. And yet I remember what came with that was a, a deep sense of peace and joy, knowing that I had dealt with some business. And then it was my hunting. Hunting has been something that I've enjoyed a lot from my younger days. And I've, in the past, I've, I've put a lot of effort, a lot of time into that. In fact, in those years, I was investing an extreme amount of time in that, putting a lot of money into it. And it was more than just an interest in my life, but I believe it's accurate to say that it was becoming an addiction in my life. Oh, I had a group of buddies that, that we were, you know, putting out the trail cameras and naming the bucks and having lists, and we were now filming hunts and all of the things that go along with that and going to the hunting shows and getting the latest Drury Outdoor hunting videos and making sure that we were doing it like the pros. And it was becoming a way of life. It consumed a lot of my thoughts and, and energy, and, and we, were, we were out to shoot the biggest bucks. But that fall of 2011, the Lord was dealing with me. Some of you, you may think this is funny, but yet this was a real, very real part of my life. It was, it was a growing experience for me, and I went out there intending to, to shoot some big bucks, intending to fill my tags and to kind of make a statement. I thought this would be the year to do it. It was looking pretty good, and uh, by the time October was over, I'd already missed six deer with my bow. I had my second largest buck on my list uh, within 15 yards and I clean missed it and, and that was on video. Don't watch it. And God was speaking to me. I remember coming back one morning after a hunt and I, I met my wife hanging out laundry and I said, uh, honey, something is not right. Uh, I think God is trying to tell me something. Like, it's just, this is, something is happening here. I don't think I can hit a deer anymore. <laughs> I think God is trying to tell me something. And I believe, too, he was. I give those illustrations from my personal life. I came to realize that God was calling me to a deeper relationship with him. There were things in my life that, that were hindering my relationship with him. Oh, I was a Christian. I had a zeal for God. But God wanted me to come deeper, and there were things that were hindering me from going deeper with him. I didn't know what the future held, but now looking back, I can see it. God had something in store for me. God had something for me to do in his kingdom. God was preparing me for more usefulness. And along with more usefulness, there are sacrifices that need to be made. And God was doing that work in my life. It was a little painful at the moment. I praise him for that now. I invite you to Ezekiel 47 for a text this evening. 
Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12. Verse 1. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. Now, let's pause for just a moment because we need to understand who this he is. Okay, so this is Ezekiel, but Ezekiel says that he brought me again into the door of the house. Who is this? Well, in order to find out what's going on here, quickly go back to chapter 40 and notice verse 3. So here, there is a man that is taking Ezekiel on a tour of the temple and the surrounding areas. And verse 3 says of chapter 40 that he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And so here was a man that had the appearance, appearance of, of shining brilliance. It reminds me of the man that we read about in Revelation chapter 2. Very similar description. John says that he was like the Son of Man. Who was this man that was giving Ezekiel a tour of the temple and surrounding areas? I don't know for sure, but was it the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ? It may have been. It may have been. There are some similarities there. So that's who we're talking about. Back to our text. Afterward, he, this man, brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looked eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. And he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through. The waters were to the loins. Afterward, he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live." And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even unto Enigleum. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many." But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade. Neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. And the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine." Now, I mentioned that we have these pictures of progression throughout the Old Testament that are pointing to the coming of the Messiah and the work of the Spirit within the hearts and lives of men and women. This is another one of those pictures of progression. 
It's a powerful picture of progress and depth in our spiritual life. In fact, when we read this, we, we feel the call to go deeper. I've entitled the message this evening, Going Deeper. Going Deeper. Now, the Jews frequently compared the blessings of God and the influence of the Holy Spirit to water in general. So when you read in the Old Testament, you read about rain and fountains and rivers and springs and streams. It is oftentimes speaking about the influence of the Holy Spirit, about the blessing of God. Flowing water to the Jews was a symbol of life, of health, of power, of God's blessing. For example, Psalm 36, verse 8, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the rivers of thy pleasure, for with thee is the fountain of life. Isaiah 35, verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out, and the streams in the deserts, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. You see, you see the, the analogy there. One more in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. God says that you have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. The Lord God, Jesus Christ, being the fountain of living water. Now, as we look into this text this evening, we'd first of all like to make some observations about it, and then secondly, we'll make some practical applications. And so as we look at the observations here, we'd like to note, first of all, the source, secondly, the size, and thirdly, the strength. We're talking about this water that is flowing through this passage. Let's note the source here. Once again, in verses 1 and 2, it says there in verse 1 that, Behold, once again, this is an exclamation. Ezekiel here is surprised. Look what I see coming. There was water issuing from under the threshold of the house eastward. In verse 2, it says that there was waters running out on the right side. Verse 12 says that these waters issued out of the sanctuary. Okay, so here is the temple. And Ezekiel is observing this water flowing from the temple. Now, the temple is facing east. The water is running east. Ezekiel is getting ready to follow the man east in the direction of the water. And so it would make sense that they go out the east gate, right? Well, it would make sense, but no, they won't. Why? Because the east gate is closed. Well, how do we know that? Well, I didn't read it here, but I want you to notice this because this is important. The east gate is closed. Now, turn back to chapter 43 for just a moment here. Chapter 43. And this is the account where... The glory of God is returning to the temple. Now, back in Ezekiel chapter 10, we read where tragically the glory of God departed from the temple. Without God's glory, uh, the temple is only a building. Without God's glory, our lives are only a shell. And we have that account of the glory of God departing. Here in chapter 43, the glory of God is now returning to the temple. You see, when God's glory returns, then the temple becomes a sacred place. It becomes a place where God lives. And I say when the, when the glory of God is within our lives, then our lives are bursting forth with that radiant outshining of, of God's presence of God's blessing, of God's power. 
But notice here what it says in verse 1. Afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Uh, Do you catch a glimpse of the splendor of God's glory? It's the noise of many waters, and the whole earth is shining, as it were, with the glory of God. Verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. Okay, now turn a page to chapter 44 and verse 1. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary with looketh towards the east, and it was shut. Okay, so here, here, we, here we have it. The, the gate going east is shut. Okay, so once again, this water is flowing east out of the temple. Uh, Ezekiel is going to follow the man east. Everything is east, but the east gate is shut. And here's why. Verse 2. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter into it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. Verse 4, Then brought he me by the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell upon my face. The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. I don't think we can, in our finite minds, I don't think we can even wrap our minds around, even start to wrap our minds around the amazing glory of the Lord. And yet, we read in one of the Corinthians about how the glory of the Lord is revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Okay, so we're talking about this source and where this water is coming from. And so as we see here, back in our text again, this water is flowing from the innermost sanctuary. Not just anywhere in the temple, but it is flowing, as verse 12 says, these waters they issued out of the sanctuary. This water is flowing from the very innermost sanctuary, from the Holy of Holies. From the place where God dwelled. The place where the priests would go into and make atonement for the people. The holiest of places. I noticed then that this water of life was also rising near the altar of sacrifice. What does it say there in verse 1? This water came down from under from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. And so this this water of life is flowing from the, the Holy of Holies, from the very innermost sanctuary. It's then flowing by the altar of sacrifice. That is the place of repentance. That water of life streaming from God Himself past the place of repentance, the altar of sacrifice, and it's now flowing eastward. The source. Let's notice the size of this water. Verse 2 says that there ran out waters on the right side. Now that word ran out is literally it trickled forth. It was coming out that small. It wasn't gushing like you... Wait a minute, there's a little leak there. It's just a little stream of water that was trickling forth from there. But we notice that it did not stay as a trickle, but instead it, it grew increasingly deeper until verse 5 says it becomes a mighty river, a raging river. Now, the width here in this account, is not specified. But the word pictures imply that the width was significant. In fact, we read there that it became too deep to walk through, too deep to pass through, okay? But we also read that this river then, at its large size, had banks on either side, and it was lined with trees. 
And so we're, we're going from a little trickle coming from the innermost sanctuary to a mighty raging river that is significantly wide and, and deep. And what about the length? Well, verse 8 says that this water issues towards the east country, down into the desert, into the sea. So we have a considerable length. I want you to notice that this water increases from a trickling stream to a mighty river, not by any help from any side streams, but it is supplied solely from that sacred source in the temple. I say it is supplied solely from the sacred source in the temple. Let us notice now the strength of this, of this mighty water of life. The strength of it. And we'll see here that this water is a healing river. Now, we notice here in verse 8 that this water is flowing eastward down into the desert or down into the Jordan Valley. I understand that that area is, is the greatest river rift perhaps in the world. A very deep, great valley that this water is streaming down through. And it empties into the Dead Sea. That is the sea that is being referenced here. This water that is trickling forth from the innermost sanctuary, this water of life is flowing east, down through the desert, through this very deep, rugged place, emptying into the Dead Sea. Now, what is significant about that? Well, the Dead Sea is a body of salt water that has no outlet. And so there is no flow. There is no movement. The water simply comes in and sits there, and the water evaporates, and the salt stays. And so you find this increasingly high volume of salt because there is no movement there and the increasingly high volume of salt in this water, it cannot sustain life. There is no life. Therefore, it's called the Dead Sea. I have been told that the Dead Sea has six times the amount of salt as the ocean. Never been there. Sherry, you've been there, right? Six times the amount of salt as the ocean. Listen here. So as we move then into verse 9, 8 and 9, we see the healing properties. We see the life-giving properties of this water. It says that when this water of life empties into the Dead Sea that cannot sustain life, the waters of the Dead Sea are healed. They are healed. And it goes on to say that everything that is in there lives. It is changed to be able to support life, to foster life. Salt water shall be healed, or the salt water shall be made fresh. Shall be healed, that's the Hebrew Rafa, it usually refers to the healing of a diseased body. But here, in this text, it is referring to how that the chemical makeup of the water is actually changed. Isn't that amazing? The water itself is changed to be able to support life, to be life-giving. Now, you notice that we have shall be healed twice. We have it in verse 8. We have it in verse 9. We also have the phrase, shall live, twice in verse 9. The rivers, whithersoever the rivers come, shall live. And everything shall live, whither the river cometh. I find it interesting that we find this same word, which is the Hebrew, kayah, shall live, to live, kaya. we find it six times in Ezekiel chapter 37. And that is the passage of the dry bones. 
You remember that story where the Spirit of the Lord took Ezekiel to this valley. He put him down in the middle of the valley, and there he was surrounded by all these dry, bleached bones. And in fact, it looked like perhaps an army had been devastated there. Bones were scattered everywhere, and he has him to walk around to look at all of this. These bones aren't even intact. They're all strewn around the valley, been pulled apart by birds and beasts and whatever thing. And then in Ezekiel 37, the Spirit asked Ezekiel, after he has looked all around at these dry, bleached bones, he says, Son of man, can these bones live? Kaya, that's the Hebrew word. Can these bones live? And as the story goes on, we read that the Spirit of God was breathed into those bones, and they lived, and they stood up on their feet, an exceeding great army. Kaya. It's a picture of hope in the midst of a hopeless situation. Something that looks like there could never be hope there. There could never be life there. Not to the, you couldn't imagine life there. And yet, they shall live. They live. Kaya. And we find that same hope in this passage as well. These waters that were death, that could not sustain life. Yet when the water of life that flows from the innermost sanctuary, that flows out of Jesus Christ Himself, when they flow into the Dead Sea, everything becomes living. It changes the water so it can support life. The NIV reads it this way, that swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Where the river flows, everything will live. Now, I want you to notice the pictures that we see in verses 10 and 12. 10 and 12. We have two pictures here. It is a picture that is just full of life. Not only does this mighty river of water give life to everything that is in it, verse 10 but look how it gives life and beauty to everything around it. Verse 12. Verse 10, there's life to everything in it. Verse 12, there's life to everything around it. In fact, think about it this way. So in verse 10, we read that it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even unto Enigleum, and they shall speak have a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, or there shall be fish there of every kind as the fish of the great sea. Now, what sea is that? That's the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is a, is a large body of water, but it's nothing compared to the Mediterranean Sea that has fish of every kind. And so, the Scripture here says that the Dead Sea will now be able to, to have fish there of every kind. Exceeding many. Okay, it says that there will be fishermen standing from Engedi to Enigleum. What does that mean? What's the significance there? Okay, so if, if we'd be looking at a map of the Dead Sea, Engedi would be about halfway up on the west side, and Enigleum, well, historians aren't completely sure where that was, but they believe. It was approximately halfway up on the east side. And so you're looking at the Dead Sea. You have Engedi on this side and Aglaim on this side. The idea there is that once these waters are healed and they support life and they're full of teeming with fish of every kind, this body of water will attract fishermen from all over and the fishermen will be lined up the whole way around this body of water fishing. It'll be that productive. It'll be that life-giving. I just thought that maybe it would be a new outfit, like Healing Waters Outfitters, you know? And fishermen would come in from all over. But that's the picture here. 
This body of water that was dead, that supported no life, now is teeming and fishermen are booking trips from all over the world coming in to see this this amazing body of water that you can catch any kind of fish there and there's many, many fish and the fishermen are lined up the whole way around this huge body of water. (laughs) Healing water's outfitters. Only something God could do. But I want you to notice the picture also in verse 12. So that speaks about the life that is in this body of water now. But notice the picture of life and beauty all around it. And by the river upon the bank thereof, and on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for me. So there'll be all kinds of fruit trees around this body of water now, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed, or the fruit will not fail. The leaf won't fade and the fruit won't fail. Neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to its months. Or in other words, new fruit will grow on these fruit trees every month of the year. You, you, you see what it's saying there? All around this body of water, wherever this water of life is, there is continual life. Life inside, life around, fruit trees that are bearing fruit. And so progression where you have, you have these waters that are flowing in there. These waters are producing life. Then you have the trees that are producing life. And then you have fruit that produces life. Why? Because, verse 12, there are waters they issued out from the sanctuary. The reason this is so fruitful, the reason this is so life-giving, is because the water is flowing from the very source of life. Inside and out, it's a picture of life. Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, the grace of God, and I'll add, the Spirit of God, makes dead sinners alive and living saints lively. Everything is made fruitful and flourishing by it, but its effect is according as it is received, as the mind is prepared and disposed to receive it. I want you to think about that. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of life. He says he makes dead sinners alive and living saints lively. That's beautiful. It's a picture of life. However, God does not force that on everyone. You have to be open to receive it. You have to want it. You have to say, Lord, I want that water of life to just flood my spirit, to flood my life. I want to be a picture of life and health and beauty and fruitfulness. I ask you tonight, how bad do you want it? Is that something that you want in your life? Because look at verse 11. But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. It's a picture of of areas that the flow of the water is not getting to. Oh, yeah, when there's an abundance of rain, there might be some water that runs over and there's some puddles. But it is not flowing water. And you know what that produces? Swampy, stinky land. There's no flowing water. It's not clean. It's not pure. It can't sustain life. They shall be given to salt. It's a picture of unproductiveness. In fact, it's a picture of judgment. As you look into the Old Testament, you will find that salt is often a picture of judgment. For example, remember Lot's wife? There's other examples as well. But salt is a picture of judgment. And here it says there are those, spiritualizing it right now, there are those who do not accept the water of life, do not accept That powerful, life-giving stream that flows from the very presence of God Himself. And their lives, their lives are like a swamp. Muddy, stinky, unproductive. Speak of judgment to come. 
you know, as I thought about these pictures, I couldn't think of some of the parallel pictures that I see in the Old Testament. In Psalm 1, we think about the blessed man, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. There you go. Sounds just like this picture, right? Turn to another one here, uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, a very similar picture. I'll draw a couple thoughts from that. And here we see a real contrast. Of course, we can move on to Psalm 1 and quote the rest, too. The ungodly are not so, okay? All right, but let's just look at this one. In Jeremiah chapter 17, starting at verse 5, and I want you to note particular the difference in perspective, the difference in perspective of these two groups of people we have here. Jeremiah 17, 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land. There it is. In a salt land, and not inhabited. On the contrast... Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful, or not worry, in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Isn't that beautiful? But notice that contrast again of perspective. So the man who the Lord said is cursed, the man who trusts in himself, the man who does not reach out to God and ask for his sustaining power and his water of life, that man, it says in verse 6, he does not see when good cometh. He does not see when good cometh. His focus is not on the blessing of God. His focus is on, is on how bad things are. All he's thinking about is himself. And he doesn't even see, he doesn't even recognize when God brings blessing. He doesn't see when good comes. But notice in verse 8, the blessed man. This man whose trust is in the Lord, who's serving the Lord, who's delighting in the Lord. It says that he doesn't know when the heat comes. He doesn't even worry about in times of drought. Do you see the vast difference in perspective? Because he's trusting God, and he knows God will provide. His hope is in the Lord. One man doesn't see when good comes, and one man doesn't see when bad comes. It all depends where your focus is. It all depends who you're trusting in. Let's move on now and notice some applications from this passage for us today. This living stream of water that's flowing from the sanctuary in the temple, that's continually growing deeper and deeper and wider, that is filling every place where it flows with life and health, represents the power and blessing of God and the life-giving power of His Holy Spirit. Dear people, wherever the Spirit is, there is movement. I repeat, wherever the Spirit is, there is movement. That water is trickling forth, but growing and growing and deeper and deeper and wider. And it's a river of life. It's healing waters. There's flowing water. I am confident, in fact, beyond doubt, that God wants to take each of us to a deeper place in our relationship with Him this year. How am I so confident about that? Why do I know for sure? Because that is the call of the Gospel. And that is the nature of the Spirit. Once again, you find these examples throughout the whole of Scripture. The call of the Gospel is to come, 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 grow, come deeper. God is all about saving sinners and sanctifying saints. That is the mission. That is the purpose of the gospel. 
And yet many people today still resist his loving invitation to come and experience that life that flows from the throne of Jehovah alone. I say tonight that too many Christians today are just fine with loafing around the altar, as it were. Loafing around the place of their initial experience. And too many church members today, I believe, are just, just too fine with splashing around in ankle-deep water. Just, they just feel comfortable there. They feel safe. Not too stretching. They can still feel the ground. Their feet are on the ground. I say they just feel mighty comfortable splashing around in ankle-deep water. But yet God is calling each of us to a deeper relationship with Him. Come deeper with me, He's saying. Why does this scare us? I mean, I'll just be right up with you. It scares me. You know, I think I mentioned this earlier in the week once, that when, when we hear God calling us, when we feel that tug of the Spirit, our flesh wants to say, but I'm afraid that God is going to ask something of me that I can't part with. You know, what if, what if God takes my wife? What if God takes my child? I don't know I can do that. And so instead of saying, God, you can have it all, we, we start living life with a clenched fist. Or, or God, you can have just this much, but don't take that. I say, why do we stubbornly resist the warm invitation from Jesus Christ to come deeper? The nudge of the Spirit because we don't fully trust Him. It's just simply put, we don't fully trust Him. You see, the deeper we go, the less control we have. God calls us to ankle-deep water. Yeah, I can do that. Water to the knees. Probably. To the waist. Maybe, maybe. Water over our heads? Mm -mm. I doubt it. I don't think I can do that. You see, as long as we can keep our feet on the ground, as long as we can figure it out, as long as it makes sense to us, then we trust Him. I, then I'm yours, Lord. But I just have to be able to keep a little bit. I, I have to see my way through. But when God calls us to dive into water over our head, then we're, then we're hesitant. We're not sure we can make it through. And so we'd rather just stay where it's comfortable. What kind of faith is that? What kind of faith is that? The Scripture says that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. <laughs> not seen. I mean, if you can see it to the end... Well, you don't have to have faith for that, do you? You know, you know <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> this is how the Christian life works. You put a little bit into it, you get a little bit out of it. You put a lot into it, dear people, you're going to get a lot out of it. It's directly proportional. So why don't you just give him everything you got? Because when you give Christ everything, Boy, He will fill you to overflowing. Overflowing. Why don't you release your grip on those things? Say, Lord, just take me. Do whatever you want to do with me. And it is only through that that we then experience the powerful, mighty, raging river of the Holy Spirit flowing through us. Making us a channel of blessing to a parched world around us. Let me just remind you this evening that we serve a faithful God. We serve a powerful God. We serve a God that is able to do exceeding abundantly above more than we can ask or think. That's the God we serve. We serve a God that will bring us through. Yes, even through those situations that look absolutely overwhelming, like we talked about this morning. Those 2 Chronicles chapter 20 situations. We serve a God that can bring us through those. I mentioned 
that question in Ezekiel 37. When Ezekiel saw, took note of this overwhelming situation, this hopeless situation, this lifeless situation, and God asked him, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, I remind you that Ezekiel was a priest. Ezekiel had seen the mighty power of God. Ezekiel had seen the glory of God. He had witnessed lives restored. He had been at the altar and and he had witnessed people coming and making things right and receiving uh, forgiveness from their sins and going away new and clean and joyful. He had seen all that. He knew what God could do in people's lives. And yet, when he saw this hopeless, lifeless situation in chapter 37, he was between a rock and a hard place. Yes, he, he, he wants to believe that God can work, but in this situation, oh, wow. And so he says, oh, Lord, thou knowest. He was hesitant to really come out. Does that feel like you sometimes? That feels like me. Lord, I, I, I want to believe, but I, I don't know. Lord, you know. And here we have another very similar situation where God is showing a picture that once again looks over the top. It looks overwhelming. It looks larger than life. And he asks a question. He brings Ezekiel through this and then pops this question. What does he say? In verse 6, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Have you seen this? Oh, sure, Ezekiel saw it, but have you seen this? In other words, he's digging deeper. He's digging deeper. You know how God does that sometimes? Puts things right in front of us. We observe it. Yeah, I see that. No, no. Have you seen this? You see, why did he say that? We have the ankle-deep water, and the Scripture says, He brought me through. We have the knee-deep water, and the Scripture says, He brought me through. We have the waist-deep water, and the Scripture says, He brought me through. But now we have water that is over His head, and it doesn't say, He brought me through. What does that mean? You see, that's where faith comes into play, dear people. He brought me through this. He brought me through this. He brought me through this. Now I'm here. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Wouldn't you like to read that He brought Him through that too? Wouldn't that give you a little hope? But dear people, that's where we have to have faith. Maybe you're looking at a situation right now. Maybe God is calling you to a deeper place with with Him. And you would like something visible to see. You would like an anchor to hold on to that's, yeah, okay, I'm going with you because this, 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 boom, got it. And He's saying, will you just trust Me? Will you just trust Me? Will you trust that I can bring you through? In fact, I've brought you through the rest. Am I just going to drown you now? Do you think I'm really going to let you go? But see, we can't, we can't touch the bottom anymore. In order to get through this, we're going to have to just dive into the current and trust someone other than ourselves, And that gets scary. But you're not going to experience that powerful, mighty, raging flow of the Spirit by just splashing around in the shallow water, dear people. And I say, it's in this. Yes, he brought me through that. He brought me through that. He brought me through that. Now this, don't doubt him now, dear people. Don't doubt him now. As I thought about the promise of God to bring us through, we have that different times in Scripture. In Isaiah 43, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 84, it talks of people who are passing through the valley of Baca. They make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. We serve a God, I say, that brings us through. That brings us through. Don't doubt Him now. If you're on the edge of that river, don't doubt Him now. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. The Hebrews writer calls us to grow up in our faith. The Hebrews writer calls us to go on to spiritual maturity. The end of chapter 5, verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. In other words, he's saying, what is wrong with you? You've been a believer long enough. You should be teaching. You should be uh, preaching. You should be mentoring others in their faith in Christ. You've been there long enough. What's going on? Instead, you need people to still baby you along. Verse 13, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So the writer here is admonishing the readers for their lack of spiritual growth. So then he moves on in chapter 6. Therefore, laying aside the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Or let us grow up in our faith. Let's move on to deeper waters. You know, God is calling us today, dear people, to dive in and to live in the full flow of the Spirit. Clinging to that anchor of hope that we read about later in chapter 6 that is both sure and steadfast. Isn't that beautiful? Just dive in. Trust me, God is saying. Cling to that anchor of hope. It's sure and steadfast. I will be with you. It's only then that we can experience His mighty power flowing through our lives and impacting our world and relationships for Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And here Jesus is speaking to the woman there at the well. You know, she thought she was going to get some water. <laughs> Boy, wasn't she in for a surprise. She actually met the living water at the well that day. And here in John chapter 4, Jesus said in verse 13, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. He probably pointed to the well. Lady, whoever drinks that water, they're going to thirst again. But... Verse 14, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That is the picture of like an artesian well that is bubbling up from the innermost, you know, we could say it's coming from natural pressure. Natural pressure is just making that water bubble up from under the ground. And that's what Jesus is saying. The water that I give you shall be in you like an artesian well. Not only will it give you life, not only will it make you fruitful, but, but it will also make you a channel of life to others, flowing out of you, enriching your world and relationships for Jesus Christ. It's that water that flows out of the innermost sanctuary from God the Father Himself. Beautiful, it's powerful, it's life-giving. As we bring this to a conclusion, I want to think for just a moment about Jerusalem. You know, I understand that Jerusalem was the only great city of the ancient world that was not located on a river. And I find that fascinating because, well, our text this evening was there was water coming out from the temple. 
I say Jerusalem was the only city in the ancient world that was not located, at least a major city, that was not located on a river. Why is that? I mean, in that day, a dependable water supply was absolutely essential for life, for protection. Why not Jerusalem? What was different about Jerusalem? Dear people, Jerusalem was the city of the great king. Jerusalem was the city of the one who is the water of life. God wanted to be their life. He wanted to be their health, their protection, their defense. He said different times, in essence, believe in me, obey me, keep your eyes on me. I will fight your battles. Look to me. I want to be your savior. I want to be your provider. But the Bible says that one day... Jerusalem will have a river like no other nation has ever had. Turn to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, if you can find it. Right after Hosea, right before Amos. Joel chapter 3 in verse 18. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah will flow with waters. And the fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Do you see that? The fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord. Turn to Zechariah. Keep going a few pages to Zechariah. And notice a few pictures here. Chapter 13 and verse 1. We're talking about that one day the Bible says that Jerusalem will have a river like no other nation. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now jump down to chapter 14 in verse 6. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. Or he's saying there, it'll be a unique day that doesn't have daytime or nighttime. But it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day, here we go, that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. In other words, so much water will be flowing out of Jerusalem that it'll go in a couple different directions, year-round, continually. Verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one, or his name will be the only name. Now maybe you've already started thinking of this passage in your mind. Let's end with Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. And this is so beautiful. This is a picture there in heaven. A picture of the place that we as believers anticipate going to, anticipate being a part of. Where we anticipate worshiping Jesus Christ face to face. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. There it is. Clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river were there the, was there the tree of life, listen to this, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. Does that sound like Ezekiel 47? And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. <laughs> Amen. And I say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Are you looking forward to that day? Are you looking forward to worshiping in the glories of heaven? I trust you are, but dear people, I hope you understand that it begins today. It begins today. In fact, eternal life begins today. Eternal life is received as that free gift of salvation as we accept. Those who refuse to accept that, their lives then end up being that swampy, stinky land, that salt area. But those who say, yes, Lord, continue to do your work in me. I accept that gift of salvation. The Holy Spirit moves inside. His water of life, that flow of the Spirit, floods our, floods our soul, making us a new creature, making our lives fruitful, beautifying the world around us, and we become a channel of blessing to others, bringing glory to God. I invite you to receive that water of life tonight. Perhaps you're here tonight and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Perhaps you have never experienced that mighty, raging, life-giving flow of the Spirit. The invitation is for you. What better way to end this week of meetings than naming Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? Or maybe you're here tonight and the Spirit has been speaking to you and you need to recommit your heart to the Lord. You know that you have been splashing around in ankle-deep water. You know that the Spirit has been speaking to you and you've been resisting that. And God wants to take you to a deeper relationship with Him. If that's you tonight, the invitation is for you as well. If the Spirit is speaking to you, as we sing a couple verses of Just As I Am, I ask you to stand to your feet and come to the front and someone will pray with you. Shall we sing?